That's kind of funny to say this after we've been talking for an hour or so. I don't want to bury the lead. There's an even deeper reality to the tabernacle in force. You could say that all day long. There's an even deeper reality. <laughs> Every layer peels back. No, we're going deeper. We're going deeper. And in this case, we're going up. And it, it isn't just a replica of what is in heaven, the tabernacle. But more specifically, who is in heaven? And by the end of this day, as we're talking about the tabernacle, I hope that you're going to have a very wide, varied look and going, when you say the tabernacle, you're going to go, ooh, that's, that's a big word. That's a big yeah. word. <laughs> so the tabernacle was a detailed replica of Jesus on the throne in the sanctuary of the throne room. Interestingly, the Hebrew word for pattern, tabnit, is its action or verbal root is bana, the root word for son. The real tabernacle is the son of God, Jesus. Mm. So every time you, you think pattern, well, what are we looking at? We, you're talking about Jesus. In the same way that God made man in his image, the tabernacle was a copy or image of heavenly things that would be manifested through the son. The earthly tabernacle was all prophesying of the day when the word would take on flesh to walk and dwell among his people, right? Leviticus 26 tells us, And I will set my tabernacle among you, and my soul shall not abhor you, and I will walk among you, and will be your God, and you shall be my people. Imagine what in the world they were thinking when he said such things. Mm. The tabernacle and all its furnishings inside and out told the story of what the Messiah would do for our salvation. Now, 2,000 years ago, those prophecies became flesh and blood. John 1 tells us, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And the funny thing is when we read those verses, we're not thinking of what the words mean a lot of times. God was coming near to dwell. And once you've studied the tabernacle, you go, wait, 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 I get this one. Well, interestingly, the word dwelt in the Greek, skenao, means to tabernacle to encamp, to pitch a tent. So we could rightly say that the tabernacle of heaven became a tabernacle of flesh among us. Now, Revelation 12 says of the end times, and he, the beast, opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle and them that dwell in heaven. Dwell here is also tabernacling, all right? So he's blaspheming the name of God, the tabernacle of God, and those who are dwelling in the tabernacle. But wait, there's still much more to the story. The word tabernacle is an English rendition of the Hebrew word mishkan, or dwelling place. First Corinthians 6 tells us, or do you not know that your body is the temple or tabernacle of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? So it's not just that Jesus is the tabernacle. He also made us the tabernacle. It just keeps going deeper and deeper and deeper. Romans 12 tells us, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. So we are his temple now, and we're his bronze altar, the first thing you encountered in the tabernacle, where we present ourselves as that living sacrifice. The key to unlocking that verse and applying it in our lives is connected with understanding how we are the tabernacle of Christ. In Revelation 1 and 5, he tells us that he has made us kings and priests mm -hmm. to his God and Father. Well, it was in the tabernacle that Christ seated us in, heavenly places or enthroned us as kings with him 
And he has made us priests. What does that mean? Well, the priests were to be cleansed at the labor to do the work of the tabernacle in the holy place. Uh, What does that mean when the tabernacle is us? Well, the Day of Atonement isn't just some ancient day set aside for disciplined fasting and repentance while you trudge through the book of Leviticus and celebrate an Old Testament festival. It's an intimate encounter between you and the God who dwells inside you. And studying this festival is a roadmap to how you can learn to continually encounter him in the heavenlies. So let's break it down. There are three parts to the tabernacle or temple. The open air outer court called the courtyard and the main covered structure, which is called the sanctuary. There's only one way into the courtyard as well as to the sanctuary. And that was from the east. As you stepped into the courtyard, you came to the altar of burnt offering and then the laver of water for washing. The priests were the only ones allowed to go further and enter the sanctuary. When they stepped into that tented area called the holy place, they saw the table of showbread on the right, the golden lampstand or candlestick on the left, and at the far end was the altar of incense, a much smaller altar, which sat in front of a veil or curtain on the far end. Behind the veil was a smaller tented area called the Holy of Holies, or the Most Holy Place, which housed the Ark of the Covenant with the mercy seat. It was there, above the mercy seat, that the presence of God would dwell. Now, while the priests were given the daily care of the Holy Place, they were forbidden to enter the Holy of Holies, because there was only one day each year when the high priest could pass through the veil to enter the Holy of Holies, to place blood on the mercy seat, to cleanse the tabernacle, the priesthood, and the people. That day was the Day of Atonement. One of the most important realities of this day is that you can't have the Day of Atonement without the tabernacle. The Jews haven't been able to celebrate it fully for 2,000 years because the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD. In reality, the temple became moot as soon as Jesus was crucified, buried, and resurrected in 33 AD because there is no atonement apart from Jesus, who is the true tabernacle. The profound irony of the rabbinic traditions of Yom Kippur are just absolutely mind-blowing. I mean, the primary commands in the Bible for us on this day are to fast and to Sabbath, to stop. (laughs) They go a bit further. They wear white grave clothes to live as if they were dead. They're repenting and praying for their sins to be removed and their names to be written in the book of life, which can't happen because they reject the Messiah and Yeshua Jesus who is the book of life, which is ironic. The Day of Atonement was the other side of the cross when Jesus was stripped of his robe, spent the day dying, and was then buried. So they're trying so hard to do the structure without the one. To carry the world's sins, to atone for them, that's what he was doing. To redeem mankind, to write our names in the book of life, Like the high priest on Yom Kippur, he alone could enter the Holy of Holies, so it was always going to be about Jesus. As Christians, we also observe this holy day to live as dead and wear white. Some do, some don't. I certainly do. But we do it to acknowledge that we're dead in our sin, and so we can make no impact on our salvation. Only Jesus could save us as the perfect, sinless Lamb of God. So all the traditions the rabbinic movement of the Jews continued to do, absolutely worthless, But it is a shadow, beautiful, they're so close, but they just missed the whole picture, but it's so close. So there you go. Coming up, 
we're going to look about understand, I think, one of the most profound questions. A lot of questions got answered for me these last four months that I've asked God for a very, very long time. One of those is, why do we have this Day of Atonement? We have Passover. What's, why are we in the fall doing this whole thing again? We're going to look at times and patterns coming up next.